The cross of Christ is infinitely powerful. It judges the unbelieving world, it dethrones and defangs Satan, and it draws people to the Savior. The time to believe in and follow Jesus is today. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 12, We're studying the Gospel of John, as most of you know. Uh, We've come to the last week of Jesus' life on earth, generally called Passion Week. And the Greek word for passion, the Greek verb is pasco, and it means to suffer. So this is obviously the week of our Lord's suffering. Jesus has been claiming now for three years plus that he is God in human flesh. He is Israel's promised Messiah, and he's been validating that claim by fulfilling numerous Old Testament prophecies and by performing hundreds of supernatural miracles, signs, John calls them, throughout Israel for the last three years. Only a few days before this chapter, he has raised Lazarus, his good friend, from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days, as you remember, and his His sister Martha was concerned that his body was smelling, which it obviously was, but when the Lord commanded Lazarus come forth, he came out. And the news of that resurrection spread like wildfire. Now remember, this time of year, it's Passover season. Every year, they would celebrate Passover, which commemorated God's taking them out of Egypt and the Passover angel literally passing over Israel households that had the blood on the doorpost and striking the Egyptians. So they celebrated that every year. What that meant is that Jerusalem, which normally had about 30,000 population, now had three to 400,000 population. So the population probably went up 10 to 15 times during this week. So there's an enormous number of people in Jerusalem for this event. And the Jewish crowds, when they heard that Christ had raised Lazarus from the dead, they were convinced that this miracle-working Messiah, Jesus, was going to overthrow Rome, install Israel as a sovereign nation, and from there he would establish his millennial kingdom on earth. So they were convinced he was their ticket to freedom. And they had a parade, sort of a ticker tape parade for him on Palm Sunday. Recall that he rode in Jerusalem onto the donkey, precisely as prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they'd been planning to kill Jesus for better than almost three years now. And when this parade occurred, they realized they had to accelerate their plans. They initially talked about assassinating and murdering him after the festival. But now they said, the whole world's going after him. We need to kill him as soon as possible. And Judas, of course, shows up and offers to betray him. So Jesus knows that his date with the cross is Friday, Friday, and of course Palm Sunday has occurred, and this is maybe this could be Tuesday. We're not exactly sure what day of the week this particular event took place on. Probably a Monday or a Tuesday, but he knows that on Friday he's going to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 
I want to give you a little history background. When, when God called the Jews as his own people, as his holy nation, as a tribe of priests, he called them to be a missionary nation. His point in blessing them with his word, with the law, with the sacrifices, with the sacraments, etc., was he wanted to win the world and save the world, and he was going to use the Jewish nation as his missionary witness to the nations of the world. In other words, they were going to be the means through which God was going to save the entire earth. And God told Abraham that way back in Genesis 3. He said, Abraham, in you, your family, your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this was obviously going to come to the Messiah. So God set Israel apart as a nation. And he gave them enormous amount of blessings so that they would tell others around them about the God of Israel. And they would be interested in following that God. But unfortunately, Israel thought that God's blessings belonged to them only because they were special, right? And that those pagan Gentiles deserved the judgment that God was going to give them. So the nation at large became very self-righteous, very arrogant, and very insulated. A, a, a proper Jew during this time would not talk with a Gentile, would not eat with a Gentile, would not go into their homes, would not even walk on their dirt if possible because they were unclean. And so there was a very much a, a perverted view of the Gentiles that God did not have about them. God wanted to use Israel as a missionary people, and the Is Israelites became very self-centered. Not unlike many Christians today, right? Who don't want to have anything to do with anybody who's not like them. They even move to states where they think there's more Christians. Isn't that amazing? Phenomenal. I know, now I'm meddling. So after three years of public ministry, Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The crowds went from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him by Friday, five days. And the leaders were planning his murder. When the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God, as we're going to find out in the book of Acts, inaugurated the church to bring the gospel to the world. And the church basically says anyone, anyone, Jew or Gentile, anyone can be saved and adopted into God's family simply on the basis of faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. And that event, that monumental event, is anticipated here in verse 20, where we're going to begin our narrative today. So if you could look at John 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks, that's a word for Gentiles, non-Jews, among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, quote, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Here's the principle. And this is an application principle for us today. Meeting with Jesus must be our first priority every day. I know you're very busy people. I know you have very busy calendars. And I know you have a lot of very, very important stuff to do. However, your first priority is your vertical relationship with Almighty God. And if you don't get that one first thing in the morning, the day is going to circle the drain pretty quickly. And you may think it's a very successful day by 9 p.m., but if you didn't talk with the Lord, 
you may well have pursued your agenda and neglected his agenda for the whole day because you never asked him what it was, right? So don't believe that just because it was a successful day by your measurement, it was a successful day. It's a successful day if you meet with Jesus. Now, these God-fearing Gentiles, they're probably Jewish proselytes, which means they could be converts to Judaism. And they've come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the text says they kept asking Philip to arrange an audience with Jesus. They wanted to meet with Jesus. They wanted an interview. And Philip's home is in Bethsaida near Galilee, northern Israel. It's right near the Decapolis. Decapolis 10, Deca 10, Polis cities, 10 cities. There were 10 Greek small cities in northern Israel bordering Galilee. And that's probably where these Gentiles were from. We're not exactly sure, but we think that's true. And if they were from that region, Philip lived right, right next door in the city of Bethsaida. That's maybe how they knew him. We don't have any record of whether Jesus met with him or not, but we assume that he did because Jesus has said previously, anyone who comes to me, what? I will in no way turn them away. I will not cast them out. I will not, I will not turn away from them. I want you to see the contrast here. It's really remarkable. Jesus has spent three years demonstrating his deity to his own people, the Jewish nation. And they have rejected him. The leaders are trying to kill him. And here are Gentiles seeking after him. These Gentile seekers are a foretaste of the church, which is going to happen in Acts 2. All people, one of the great remarkable illustrations of God's grace is you. None of us came to Christ because we have anything to commend us, right? We're sinners. But he says anyone can come, anyone can come and become part of his body, the church. Jesus came to redeem the whole world, not just a particular subset of the world. It says, for God so loved the world. And that means God so loved you and me individually. And Jesus' response to these Gentiles is pretty unexpected. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's the principle. Jesus' death produces eternal life for all who believe in him. Jesus' death produces eternal life for all those who believe in him. So Jesus sees these seeking Gentiles as evidence that his mission to save the world is now coming to its climax. Remember that for three years throughout the Gospels, Jesus always says, my time has not come. My hour has not come. In other words, it's not time for me to go to the cross. Now he says, the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. And the statement, of course, is made in front of the Gentiles, the disciples, and this Jewish crowd. And he uses this term, son of man. Son of man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. It's found in Daniel chapter 7. And the Jews knew that passage extremely well. It was the title of the Messiah. And I'm sure when Jesus said, it's time for the son of man to be glorified, that the Jewish crowd was applauding. Because for them, for the Messiah to be glorified, meant he's now going to attack Rome, destroy them, set up his kingdom on earth, and the Jewish nation is going to be the sovereign nation over the world, as prophesied by Isaiah, etc., etc. And that, in fact, will happen in the millennium at his second coming, 
not his first coming. And Jesus immediately shatters their understanding of what Messiah will do when he equates his glory with his death. He says the Son of Man is going to be glorified, meaning the Son of Man is going to be glorified through his death. And he uses this term, truly, truly. It, it, it really means pay attention. What I've got to say next is really, really important. So most assuredly, I want you to pay attention to this next crucial statement. And Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified not through physical conquest, but through physical death. And he uses the illustration of a seed. And of course, this was an agricultural economy, so everybody understood seeds and planting. So Jesus is using this agricultural illustration. And he says, look, in a granary, a seed is preserved. You put a seed in your hand, it has this outer shell, right, that protects the life inside the plant. And that shell is armored by the uh, outer shell, the grain is. And that's a nice thing. The seed is very safe. But as long as it's in your hand, it produces no fruit, right? Only when you plant the seed in the ground, dark, damp, right? Then it decays, the shell decays, and it dies. And only after it disintegrates and, quote, dies, can it reproduce a flourishing plant which can yield thousands of seeds and fruit and trees and all sorts of things. And of course, you and I depend on that because we wouldn't be eating lunch today if that process hadn't occurred a few months before. So what Jesus is saying, in order to bear fruit, the seed has to die. And obviously he's referring to himself. Jesus is the grain of wheat that dies. He's buried in the tomb, he's resurrected, and he bears much fruit. When Jesus dies in the place of the sinner, of course, he ransoms many, many people from death and gives them what? New life, spiritual life, eternal life. So he's comparing himself with the seed that goes into the ground and dies and then is resurrected and then produces much spiritual life in the lives of believers. The only way sin can be paid for, of course, is through the sacrifice of Jesus. He ever thought what would happen if Jesus did not die? Well, number one, you wouldn't be here. Number one, you wouldn't be going to heaven. What that means is there would be a lot of empty real estate in heaven because it would just be angels. That's it. No need for God to build any mansions because none of us would make it if Jesus hadn't died and paid our sin debt so we could go to heaven. And Jesus says, I am making a place for you. I wonder if he's still building mansions in heaven dwelling places in heaven, because there's many, 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 many more people that he wants to save at that point in time. He's saying, look, I'm going to lay down my life to give you life and to bring you to heaven where you will be praising him for all eternity and bringing him glory and enjoying his company and his um, holiness. And Jesus now tells people, he says, if you want to follow me, this is what that entails. Let's take a look at verse 25. He speaks in paradoxes. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's the principle. When you love Jesus more than anything else in this world, you will follow him and have fellowship with him. 
When you love Jesus more than anything else in this world, you will follow him and have fellowship with him. I probably should have added, you will have fellowship with him for all eternity. That's probably a more accurate statement. So you can write that in when you're taking notes. Have fellowship with him for all eternity. Now, the Christian life is full of paradoxes. A paradox is an apparent contradiction that, make, that doesn't make sense if you look at it on one level. If you look at it on two levels, it makes extremely good sense. Here's what he's talking about. When Jesus says, lose your life, he's talking about physical, physical life. He talks about, you'll gain it for all eternity. He's talking about spiritual life. So this whole paradox is a contrast between life on earth and eternal life in heaven and eternal life on earth. So think about the rules in God's kingdom that run directly counter to the rules on planet earth. God's power is made perfect in what? Our weakness. To be rich, you must be poor in spirit. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to rule, you must be the servant of all. When you humble yourself before God, he will exalt you. If you exalt yourself before God, he will humble you right? And now Jesus states another paradox of what it means to follow him. He says, if you love your life, and he's talking about your life here on earth. He's talking about an egocentric, self-centered life on earth. He's talking about making the things of this life, including yourself, an idol. Now, an idol is anything you value more than God himself. The number one idol in everyone's life looks at you in the mirror every morning. It's us, ourselves. We want to be the object of worship, right? Look at Adam and Eve. Satan says, you can become like God. And they bought it, and we've inherited their nature. Jesus says, if you love your life on earth, if you live a self-centered life where you want to be God and your pleasure means more than anything else, you're going to lose your life when you die. Everything here, your pleasures and your treasures, you will lose when you die. And we say, well, that's pretty obvious. You're going to go in the grave, your stuff's going to go in the landfill, and worms are going to eat them both. Hasta la vista, baby, right? He says, if you hate your life, and I'm, I'm, you need to understand when I read that, I thought, man, I know a lot of people that hate their life, Right? He's talking about comparative. When he says hate and love in this context, he says it means you prefer something so strongly that compared to that thing, everything else is hate, right? Look at Matthew 10, 37. Jesus is talking about if you love your father and your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son and daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And I can see some of you going, well, he hasn't messed with me yet. He hasn't put grandchildren in there. Well, he's got grandchildren in there too, right? Verse 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, here's another paradox. He who has found his life here on earth will lose it eternally. And he who has lost his life here on earth for my sake will find it for all eternity. Here's the whole point. Jesus is to be our first love. Jesus is to be our supreme love. Compared with loving Jesus, 
everything else we love should seem like hate. Now, it's, we've had pretty reasonable weather, but a week from today, it's supposed to be 109 degrees. And I know that for many of you, ice cream in July is a really good thing, especially when it's 109 degrees. And I've had people say, I love this ice cream flavor, whatever it happens to be. But I want to tell you something. Loving an ice cream cone in July is not the same as loving your family, right? Would you say those loves are different in nature? So your love for an ice cream cone will seem like hate when you compare it to loving your children or your grandchildren. That's the point Jesus is making. He's not saying you should be miserable in this life. He says, compared to loving me, loving everything else in this life should seem like hate because your love for me is supreme. And he says, if you don't hate your life in this world, you're not worthy of me. Let me explain that. What we have to understand is what life on this earth is really all about. If you look at this life in this world, you would have to conclude that it's broken, yes? That it's futile. You live life, no matter how good you take care of yourself, you get sick, you get old, you die. It's sinful. People do a lot of really bad stuff. You don't have to read much of the newspaper or news flow online to see that. And it's dying. The world is dying. The wheels come off civilization over time, and that's how it works. So without Christ, what is life on this earth like? Well, it's probably not worth hanging on to without Christ. Where is your hope in this life if you don't have Jesus Christ? I mean, where is your hope? This world is broken and is passing away. Why would you love a broken, sinful, dying, falling world more than you love Jesus? John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So Jesus is saying, if you abandon your broken life of sin, if you trust me to forgive your sin, you will receive eternal life. Now, eternal life is not just infinite quantity of life. I know people will say, well, eternal life means you're going to live forever, but you'll live forever just like you are now. Well, if you live forever just like you are now, that's not much looking forward to, right? That means I have eternal aches and pains forever and ever. Mm, I don't think so. I'd just as soon be done with that stuff. Eternal life is not just quantity of life. It's a divine quality of life. Eternal life, if Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and you have received him by faith into your life, you have eternal life now. The Holy Spirit lives in you right now. You have the divine life of God living inside you today. And it's a life that loves Jesus and values Jesus more than anything else. It's an attitude of self-sacrifice because we joyfully surrender the things of this life to obey God's will because we want to. I used to look at Christians and say, how can they do all that stuff? Because they want to. 
They want to please the Lord. They have a new nature that wants to please the Lord. I didn't have that nature, so I didn't want to please the Lord. Now that I have that nature, the Holy Spirit of God gives me a desire to please Him. I drink all the alcohol I want. I just don't want to drink alcohol, so I don't drink it. I don't miss it. Guess what? That's true. When you love Jesus more than anything, and He's the one who produces that in you, there's a whole lot of stuff in this life you can say, I don't need it, right? So knowing and obeying Jesus brings joy. Unsaved people who don't know the Lord, who created the universe, they refuse to follow the operator's manual called the Bible. And they believe that self-centered living is the key to joy. How many of you know self-centered people who don't know the Lord? How many of you would say those self-centered people are radically filled with selfless joy? Most self-centered people I know are not very happy. They're busy trying to fill their brokenness with their own solutions. And we are saved people, and we are called to serve Christ. And by the way, everyone will serve somebody. Matthew 6.24 says, no one can serve two masters. You know what the implication is? You will serve at least one, right? You will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The last paradox, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Have you ever thought about the fact that the number one thing Jesus always says to all of us, the number one thing he says every single day and many times during the day is very simple, two words. He says, child, follow me. Whatever your circumstance during the day, whatever your challenge, whatever your joy, whatever your situation, the Lord Jesus is always saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. Follow me is the essence of what a Christian does. And it's impossible to serve Jesus without following him. Because the servant is always where his master wants him to be. And you say, well, how does that work out? Well, the, the apostles follow Jesus, ultimately into martyrdom, and finally into glory, into heaven. That's the point of following Jesus. Following him on earth means you also follow him into heaven and have fellowship with him in heaven forever. And you say, why would a Christian follow Jesus even to the point of death? What does Jesus promise? He says, wherever I am, you will be also. You will be with me for all eternity. Following Jesus leads to fellowship with Jesus. You cannot fellowship with someone you don't follow. And that's why the number one call on the Lord is always, follow me. And when you follow me, we will have fellowship. And some people struggle with this because they overrate this life and underrate the next one. What we know about heaven is very, very small. What the Lord has told us tells us it's a place of indescribable joy, infinite pleasure, and joy in His presence. And it is worth whatever it takes in this life. We overrate this life because this is all we know. The life to come, when you get to heaven, you will look back and you will say, I can't believe I thought that life down there was worth holding on to. Really? Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, heaven that's coming. You want to know how big it is, how much God has planned for you? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. We really have no detailed idea, but the Lord Jesus Christ has given us glimpse, and the most important part of heaven is real simple. Heaven is wherever Jesus is. That's what heaven is, by definition. I don't care where he is, if you're with him, you're in heaven. That's why fellowship with the Lord is so important, and that's why Jesus said, laying all this other stuff down is worth it because you gain me intimacy with me as you follow me. That's why obedience brings joy, because you have fellowship with the Lord when you obey him, right? Like Jesus was a seed that went into the ground, resurrected, and brought eternal life for us, you and I are seeds as well. We are small, we are powerless in ourselves, but we have God's life inside this shell. Right, this body. We have God's life in Christ and the Holy Spirit inside us. And God wants to plant you and use you to bring life to the people he plants you in and near and with. So one of the questions is, Lord, today, my schedule is yours. Who are you going to bring into my life today that you want me to love closer to you? How can I be a bearer of life through the power of the Holy Spirit to the people that you bring into my world? But you know, when you get planted in the soil of this culture, it's messy and dirty and people are nasty and sometimes it's really not fun going into the dirt. But that's where life is found, right? God plants seeds in the dirt so life can be reproduced, and we have to be willing to say, Lord, where you want to plant me, I'm willing to be planted so you can use me to accomplish your eternal life through your power using me to accomplish that purpose. Verse 27, Jesus is contemplating his death, and he says, quote, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Here's the principle. Jesus glorified God through his loving obedience and we are called to do the same. Jesus glorified God through his loving obedience, and we are called to do the same. You know, this word glorify shows up twice here, and actually it's very, very, very central to who God is. The, the, the Hebrew word for glory is kabad, and it means heavy, heavy, weighty, and valuable. And the Greek word for glory is doxa, D-O-X-A. That's where we get doxology from, right? And when you apply it to God, it means that God has infinite, intrinsic, eternal worth 
and value, right? The glory of God is the, is the visible expression of His invisible attributes. God is holy. God is loving. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is just. God has righteous wrath. And God is a spirit, so He's invisible. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of His attributes, His character. And in the Old Testament, we often saw that as light. Remember when Israel was coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, and there was this cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud that led them by day and led them by night? That's the manifestation of the glory of God seen in brilliant, bright light. And that's very often how God's glory is seen. And it rested over the tabernacle and over the temple. We are called to glorify God. What does that mean? It means we are to honor and praise and worship and treat Him as holy and so that His infinite worth is made visible. To glorify God means we live lives that accurately reflect who He is, His nature, His character, and person. You glorify God the most when your greatest satisfaction is found in Him. And that satisfaction is demonstrated by loving obedience. It's been said, and I think well said, the greatest testimony to the reality of God is His people who are filled with His Spirit and obeying His voice. The lousiest testimony to the character of God is when His children disobey Him and behave like the world. The world is not going to know who Jesus is unless they see it in you. We carry his name, Christian, Christ bearer. When we behave like he wants us to behave out of love, then people say, wow, I've never met anybody that loved me unconditionally before. I've never met anybody that forgave me for my bad behavior because the world doesn't do that stuff. So when you behave like Jesus does and you're in contact with the world, you demonstrate the character of God. You glorify him by how you live. And the price tag for Jesus' obedience is very, very costly. This is an extraordinarily interesting passage. Jesus says, my soul has become troubled. And that's a very strong word. It has the idea of shaking something or stirring something like a mixing bowl in the kitchen. You turn your KitchenAid on high and you're stirring something up. It's agitating like a dishwasher or a washing machine. It's distressing and disturbing something. This anguish of spirit that Jesus is feeling, he also we saw that in Gethsemane. We'll see that by Friday. He says, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me, not my will, but thine be done. And it says his stress and anguish are so great that his capillaries, which reside right near the sweat glands, constricted to the point where they burst and blood flowed into the sweat glands and he sweated, as it were, drops of blood in the garden. That's the amount of stress that he was under at that point. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. This is the Son of God speaking to the Father in the garden. And the one, God the Father, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And you look at this and you say, how is it that the Son of God is troubled over facing death? I mean, a lot of martyrs went to their deaths with very much a degree of praise and calmness. How come Jesus is upset? This doesn't seem like he's God. 
It's because he's not primarily troubled over the physical aspects of being crucified. He had seen lots of crucifixions. They were commonplace. He, that's an agony he's familiar with. The horror of dying in the place of the sinner is that all the guilt and all the sin of the billions of sinners who have ever lived past, present, and future are going to be placed on him, the sinless one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteous of God in him. Here's what we don't understand. God is so holy, and sin is so heinous, so evil, so wicked, that the sinner without Christ will pay for their own sins for all eternity in hell for justice to be done. My brain does not understand that. Because we do not understand the holiness of God, we do not understand the wickedness of sin, but we get a little glimpse when God says, the soul that sins, it shall die, and eternal punishment is righteous justice. That's how bad our sin is. It would take us suffering forever in hell to pay for it, and it would never be paid for. And Jesus Christ is taking all the sins, and I've got millions of them myself, as do you, of billions of human people, and he's taking them all on himself at one time, and the righteous wrath of God is going to judge sin in him. The perfect union and communion that Father had sent and experienced for all eternity is now broken. For the first time and only time in eternity, the Father and the Son are going to lose fellowship. I'm surprised the physical universe could hold together in that period of time. The Father is going to reject His Son, and He's going to judge Him for our sin, which is infinitely more suffering than the physical crucifixion. That's why Jesus cried on the cross. He didn't say, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? He said, My God, my God, the Father-Son relationship is now separated, and the wrath of God for every sin ever committed has fallen on Him. And this is why Jesus is troubled. It is right for a sinless person to be troubled over bearing all the sins of every human being who ever lived. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. I want you to notice that Jesus did not say, What shall I do? And obeying his father was never a question. He was going to obey his father. He said, what shall I say? In other words, how should I pray? That's a rhetorical question, right? Should I pray that the Father deliver me from the cross and from the wrath over sin? And Jesus immediately, the very next sentence, declares, but for this purpose I came into the world. The whole point of the incarnation was the atonement. The whole point of Jesus coming to earth was to die for the sin of the world as the Lamb of God in order to take their sin away. So, He's struggling with this, but he immediately surrenders to the Father because the cross is the central point of God's eternal plan and Jesus voluntarily chose to die in the sinner's place because he knew what would please his Father. 
John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus chose to die for the sins of the world in order to please his Father. Warren Wiersbe notes, there's really only two prayers you can pray when you're suffering. Many of you understand suffering. There's only two prayers you can pray. One is, Father, save me. The other is, Father, glorify your name. Honor your name. One is self-centered. One is God-centered. We would do better. We would pray better if we ask God to glorify himself through the circumstances that he has chosen for us. Rather than delivering me from the circumstances you have chosen for me because I don't like them. By the way, it doesn't say you should not pray to be delivered from pain, suffering, or sin. Jesus did in the garden. He said, Lord, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But immediately he said, not my will, but thine be done. But you can either say, Father, save me. I don't want to be uncomfortable. Or you can say, Father, glorify yourself through my situation, whatever it happens to be. I'm trusting you to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Because, see, the motivation behind everything Jesus did, including go to the cross, was the glory of his Father. It wasn't selfish. It was for the Father. Hebrews 12, 2 talks about the motivation of Jesus. Why would Jesus go to the cross? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus loved his Father, and he found his ultimate joy in pleasing his Father by obeying him, even to the point of death. Because obedience to God also glorifies God, always glorifies God. And when Jesus prayed this prayer that God would glorify himself, God answered from heaven. God said, the Father said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, this is significant. There's only three times in Scripture, three times, when God the Father speaks to the Son. The first time at the beginning of his ministry, remember he's getting baptized, John baptized him, and you hear a voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. When Jesus is beginning his final journey to Jerusalem about six months ago, six months before, he's transfigured on the side of Mount Hermon in front of his disciples, and they see this brilliant bright light, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, ah, oh, we're going to make some tabernacles here. You know, Peter's like me, always running his mouth. And the father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, Peter, right? And now, just before the cross, the father, the third time, he authenticates his son with an affirmation. And in the past and in the future, he is going to glorify his name. And the father assures the son that he has been glorified because Jesus Christ is obedient. The Son has been glorifying the Father for the last three years. How He lives, how He obeys, all the miracles He does, etc. And now the Father is going to glorify His name in the future through the cross of Jesus Christ and His subsequent resurrection. And you say, well, how does the cross glorify the Father? I want you to think about what the cross reveals to us about our Heavenly Father. 
through the cross and only through the cross, you see the extent of God's love for you. Through the cross and only through the cross, you see God's grace, God's mercy. You see his justice, his righteous wrath against sin. You see his judgment. You see his wisdom. You see his truth, his fulfilled prophecy, his displayed power. Christianity is the only religion in the world where the God you serve sacrifices himself for the people he loves. Every other religion, you have to sacrifice for the God you serve. You have to do all the rituals. You have to, whatever the requirements are that you have to do, you have to give up for that God. And that God doesn't feel your pain. Only in Christianity, as it says, Jesus Christ feels our pain. He suffered as we are, and he loves us enough to come and lay down his life. And the cross demonstrates the character of God like no other. Now, the watching crowd, they heard this voice, they heard thunder, but they didn't understand it. Some people thought it was an angel, and Jesus said, by the way, that, that, that voice is for you. I know the Father loves me, but if you want evidence that the Father and I are in communication, I prayed out loud, he responded out loud from heaven. That was pretty good evidence. Verse 31, now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The cross of Christ, here's the principle. The cross of Christ is infinitely powerful. It does three things. It judges the unbelieving world. It dethrones and defangs Satan. And it draws people to the Savior. So there's three things the cross of Christ does. It judges the unbelieving world, it dethrones and defangs Satan, and it draws people to the Savior. Now, when he says the cross judges the world, he's talking about the world system. This godless culture that's influenced and controlled by Satan, set up to oppose God, God's plans, and God's people. When the world crucified Christ, they thought they were getting rid of him forever. What they did is they signed their own death warrant. Because everyone will be judged for all eternity based on what? What you do with Jesus. What you do with Jesus determines your eternal destiny, your eternal future. If you reject Christ's payment for your sins, it means you're going to pay for it yourself for all eternity. And Jesus will be the judge. So the cross of Christ judges the unbelieving world. But secondly, it says the ruler of this world will be cast out or driven out. And the ruler of this world is Satan. We know that. He represents the anti-God world system, and, and you can see that, obviously, operational today. The cross represents the defeat of Satan. It's interesting that there are five references to Satan being cast out in Scripture. First of all, he was cast out of heaven as a permanent residence. He obviously still has visitation privileges. You know that from Job. But Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 say, he was cast out of heaven as a permanent residence. The second thing that happened to him is the cross set people like you and I free from his power. The cross set you free and me free from sin and death. It delivered us from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. So our citizenship is no longer in Satan's kingdom. It's in God's kingdom. We have a new master. During the tribulation, Satan will be permanently cast out of heaven. Unfortunately, he'll be cast down to the earth during the tribulation. For seven years, he'll wreak havoc here. 
At the end of the tribulation, Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years while a millennium is going on. And at the end of the millennium, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever. So the cross is a symbol and a reality of the judgment, not only of the world, but of the ruler of this world, Satan. The cross seemed to be a triumph of evil. There was great rejoicing when Christ died on the part of the demons and Satan. I don't know why they believed it. He told them he was going to rise again. But that turned to terror on Sunday morning. In fact, the cross defeated evil. And it was the source of the world's greatest good. Jesus speaks about that. He says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Lifted up here means crucifixion. You know, we, there's a song, lift him up, lift him up, lift the name of Jesus higher. So it's a misinterpretation of this passage. It basically says, if you worship Jesus, he'll draw all men to him. When he says lifted up, he's talking about crucifixion. When, they, when, when the Jews would execute someone, they would throw them down off a higher elevation. And they would stone them with rocks, throwing rocks down. Lifting up in the Roman era only meant one thing, crucifixion. Everybody understood what that meant. By this point in time, the Romans had crucified tens of thousands of Jews. And almost on every hillside, there were crucifixes and crosses for miles. So everybody knew that lifted up meant crucifixion. And he says, when I'm crucified, I'm going to draw people to me, all people to me. You know that unless the Holy Spirit draws people, people are not going to come. But if the Holy Spirit regenerates someone and gives them the new birth and draws people to the Savior, then and then only can they respond. That's why praying for people, for the Lord to open their heart is so critical. And he said, I'm going to draw them into me. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. It means the only way you're going to be saved is through the cross of Christ, only through his death, burial, and resurrection. And everyone who's going to be saved will only be saved as God draws them. You know, I just listened to a tape uh, the other day, and it profoundly struck me that the central verse of all the Bible is Jonah 2.9. Jonah's in the belly of the whale, all his hair is bleached off because it's just dead protein and stomach acid will do that to you. So when he comes out, he's an albino. He's got no skin tone and he's got no hair either. So he's in the belly of the well for three days. And down there at the bottom of the ocean, Jonah 2.9, he gives the central verse of the whole Bible. He says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. So no matter... What you and I do, if the Lord doesn't move first and draw people to himself, you're spitting in a very large hurricane. That's why prayer is so critical before we share. How does the crowd respond to this? And they say, well, we have heard out of the law that Christ is a remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's the light. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Here's the principle. The time to believe in and follow Jesus is today. 
And the crowd, they're just fresh off this triumphal entry. They don't understand that Messiah is going to be crucified. They think the Son of Man's dominion is going to last forever. And so the crowd's wondering, is this guy really the Messiah after all? And Jesus answers them. He says, you need to act on the light you currently have. You need to act on the light you currently have. I have been revealing to you for three years that I am the Messiah, and I've documented you need to accept that revelation I've given about myself. Jesus is the light of the world, and in these two verses, or three verses, light appears five times. Jesus is describing himself as the light of the world. And he says, if you want to see where you're going, walk in the light. That means obey the light you currently have. Follow what God is telling you to do today. If you don't know Christ, now's the time to receive him. If you do know him, here it's real simple. Obey what you know to be true. You have the Holy Spirit leading you. Some of us in this room are facing major decisions, major decisions. And we say, I wonder what to do. Follow the light you currently have. Ask the Lord to show you light. But it's pretty tough to say, Lord, show me what to do, but I refuse to obey what you're currently telling me what to do. God's not interested in giving you any more light. You're not obeying the light you already have. But if you're obeying the light you already have, you say, Lord, I'm walking with you. I'm walking arm in arm with you, with spirit. Stay in step with the spirit and guide me today. Show me the light. I promise you, many of us in this room, the Lord has led us in some remarkable ways. You pray, you don't know what to do, and you read it a verse in scripture, and it just jumps out of you, that's it. You get a phone call from someone who just drops a line in passing on you, and you weren't even thinking that that was significant. They weren't. And the Holy Spirit says, that's it. That's the answer for you. So the Holy Spirit has innumerable ways to shine light on our path and show us where we need to walk. And the time to do that, if you're not a Christian, is today to become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, he says, walk in the light. Walk with me. Follow the light you currently have, and I will guide your footsteps. Okay, there's a lot of material today, so let's review, and then Tom will do uh, prayer and praise. Number one, meeting with Jesus must be our first priority every day. If you don't start with that, you're making a lot of assumptions. I think you should pray before your feet hit the floor because you're assuming your feet are going to go down instead of up, so pray before your feet hit the floor. We make assumptions, right? Number two. Jesus' death produces eternal life for all those who believe in him. His death was not by accident. It was by design. It was not a tragedy. It was a divine achievement. Eternal life is dependent on the death of Christ. And he has you as a seed, and he's planting you where he wants you to be planted. Don't tell him to change gardens. He'll move you in the garden he wants you to be in, right? Number three, when you love Jesus more than anything else in this world, you will follow him, and when you follow him, you will have fellowship with him. You cannot have fellowship with a Savior you're disobedient to. When you obey Him, you will have fellowship with Him. And you will not obey Him if you don't love Him. Number four, Jesus glorified God through His loving obedience. We are called to do the same. Number five, the cross of Christ is infinitely powerful. It judges the unbelieving world, it dethrones and defangs Satan, and it draws people to the Savior. And lastly, the time to believe in, if you're not a Christian, or follow if you are a Christian, Jesus is when? Today. I love you all. Now that you know, do. 
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.